Amen. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Welcome to our second uh, night of this series about what the Bible says about some difficult questions. And tonight we come to our, our second question, a, a controversial one in our day. What is the role of women in ministry? And should women preach or be pastors? And so this is a six-week series. Last week we looked at whether or not God still does miracles. And, and if so, our answer to that was yes, but what should our posture be in pursuing them? This week we're going to look at women's role in ministry, specifically preaching and leadership in the church. Next week we're going to look at uh, the issue of baptism, specifically, we're going to look at the historical debate, debate between Christians who would believe that you should baptize infants versus others, like the practice of this church, that you should baptize only those who are old enough to have a, a credible profession of faith called believer's baptism. Then we're going to look at politics, and then we're going to look at uh, marijuana, and then we're going to finally look at uh, homosexuality and gender. And what, is that, what does that have to do with, with a profession of a faith somebody who, for somebody who might consider themselves homosexual or transgender? So tonight, we're going to look at this issue of, of a women's role in ministry. Uh, this is an important question. And, and why is it important for us to consider tonight? There's, there's several reasons pastorally why this has been on my heart. One is that I think our culture is increasingly confused about the distinctions between men and women, and it's also becoming increasingly hostile to what the Bible says about the relationships between men and women and the distinctions between the roles of men and women in the church. Secondly, we have uh, Christian friends and a world around us that disagree with what I will teach tonight, the perspective that I think is right and biblical, and an increasing number of not only the culture around us, but also Christian friends are, are starting to disagree with this particular viewpoint that I will put forward tonight. And therefore, I think we should be equipped as a church to have a winsome and a biblical response. And so I, I want to help us to ground what we believe not in a mere doctrinal statement or in a particular tradition of particular denominations, but we want to ground what we believe about this very important issue, about the distinctions between men and women, in the Scriptures themselves. And then the third burden I have is that even within conservative circles, conservative theological circles and denominations that we would find a lot of affinity with and even partner with and associate with, for example, like the Southern Baptist Convention, there has been, over the course of the last few years, some shifting and even some drifting from what I think is the correct historical biblical position on this issue. So my pastoral burden is to help equip the saints of Cross Point that I, along with the other pastors, are responsible for to build us up in the faith so that we would have a better defense for the faith and we would be more gracious but yet more courageous and winsome witnesses for the truth in all of life. You can have the right doctrine, but you don't have a good reason for the right doctrine. And I want our doctrine to be based as a church on not just traditional statements or heritage, but I want it to be based on the Bible. Uh, if we don't base what we believe confessionally on the Bible, eventually it will cave. Theology that is assumed but not really understood will be lost in several generations. Now, the particular position that I'm going to espouse tonight 
which I don't think is particularly controversial in this church. Maybe some of you are, are just visiting or you've never heard this before. Maybe you're still kind of cloudy or even disagree. Uh, I, I want you to know that I, I realize that in the, the, the status or in the broader culture, what we believe as a church is contrary to the, the, the winds of our culture. But listen to this, to this quote that I want to posture us under in this mindset from Thomas Schreiner, who is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a noted New Testament scholar, a man that I've learned a lot from over the years. This is what he says. He says, what Paul, meaning the Apostle Paul, in a scripture we're going to read in a moment, what Paul says here is con- about men and women and their distinctions is contrary to the thinking of the modern world. We are confronted here with a countercultural word from the scriptures. Now listen to this. This countercultural word, meaning the truths of the Bible, should modify and correct both our thinking and our behavior. So we are all faced with a decision. When contemporary culture disagrees with the clear teaching of scripture, much of our culture will take contemporary culture and put it in authority over the scriptures. Whereas I think the opposite is actually the faithful pathway for the Christian, is that we must subordinate contemporary culture underneath the authority of the timelessness of scripture. So with that, we're going to look, here's our outline tonight. We're going to look at three points. First, we're going to look at what does the Bible say about the role of women in ministry? Secondly, we're going to answer some objections. So what are the objections to the view that women should not preach or or be pastors or elders? So I let the cat out of the bag. I don't think that women should preach or be pastors or elders. I don't think that's a surprise to most of you. But we're going to look at some of the objections. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some pastoral concerns and exhortations. Some pastoral concerns and exhortations. Before we get into this first question, let me pray and just ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for these friends that are gathered, for these brothers and sisters, for your church, for the way you've been so kind to us, to hand to us, to, to, to cause your word to be passed down from generation to generation and preserved. We want to contend for the faith that was once and for all handed down to us, as Jude says, from the apostles, from Christ himself. Lord, help us to have clear heads, help us to have humble hearts, help us to have uh, not a a sectarian spirit, but a generous spirit, a winsome spirit, a loving spirit uh, to the world around us and to our brothers and sisters that may disagree so that we might help them and persuade them into better truth. And I pray that you'd help me be clear in my communication tonight. Make this church more like Christ as a result of our time tonight. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what does the Bible say about the role of women in ministry? We could spend a whole series of messages looking at that, but I think to most efficiently answer this question, we should ground ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. If you didn't bring your Bible tonight, um, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you, and you can find 1 Timothy 2 in that. We're going to look at verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. The context here of this uh, passage is that Paul is writing to this young pastor, Timothy, and he is pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. You can read about the beginning, the planting of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, I believe it is, 
where Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus. It's a pagan city with all sorts of idolatrous worship of false Greek gods and Roman gods. The gospel literally turns the city, I guess more figuratively, we say literally, but we actually mean figuratively, figuratively turns the city upside down, and, and, and there's riots because of Paul's gospel preaching. A church is planted in Ephesus. Paul stays there for a little while, and then he moves on, and he leaves this young man, Timothy, to pastor this church. And so he's writing him a letter instructing him in ordering the church. And the context of chapter 2 is the gathered worship, at least starting in verse 8, is the gathered worship of, of the, the church. So let me start reading in verse 8, and we're going to stop along the way. And remember, we're attempting to answer this question. What does the Bible say about the role of women in ministry? And specifically, what does it have to say about women preaching, teaching in the gathered congregation, and also filling the role of pastor elder? Verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the context here, he says that in every place, he's not talking about everywhere you go, but the context is that in every place that you're gathered to worship, the men should pray, and they should lift holy hands, there should be this posture of worship. And clearly, the situation is, is that there was probably some anger and quarreling in the church at Ephesus, and so he's mitigating against that. He's speaking a word of exhortation and correction to the men. And then he says in verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so again, contextually, clearly there was these uh, Ephesian women who were, many of them were likely coming out of a pagan culture, which was dominated by uh, the, the, the Greek goddess, um, her name is escaping me now, uh, uh, the, the kind of goddess of fertility, Di Diana maybe, I think is maybe who it is, but a very sexual culture, a very provocative culture, a very carnal culture. And so he is discipling these women saying that they are to comport themselves in this way of modesty and godliness when, at all times and especially when they gather together. And verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 are really zeroing in on what we want to look at tonight. And here's what he says to women in the context of the gathering of the church. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, so looking at verse 12, he's saying that he is, he is prohibiting, he is not permitting a woman to do two things. And those two things, in the, again, the context of this passage is the gathered assembly of the church. In those moments, in that time when the church is gathered, a woman is prohibited from teaching or exercising authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So what are the two things that are restricted? What, is, what, is what does this not mean, that a woman should not teach? It certainly doesn't mean that a woman should not teach other women, because we read in Titus chapter 2, which we'll read hopefully in a bit, that older women should instruct younger women. And certainly it doesn't mean that women shouldn't teach young children or even young boys. Uh, 
numerous times in the New Testament, women are commended for teaching even their own children, but a, a young boy is not a man. So what is prohibited here is a woman teaching, teaching men. So what's in view here, contextually, I think clearly, is the preaching and teaching of the gathered church and doctrinal instruction. What's not being prohibited here is evangelistic witnessing. So if you're a woman and you're witnessing to um, some, a, a young man that is just that you come in contact with and you're sharing the gospel with him, you should share the gospel. I don't think what is being prohibited here is wise counsel, words of wisdom, um, I- encouraging, uh, just the, the generational commending of the works of God. That's not being prohibited. And also not being prohibited is teaching on subjects other than the Bible or doctrine. What is clearly in view here is the authoritative teaching of the explanation of the scriptures in the gathered assembly over men. Also, what I don't think is is forbidden here or prohibited is the informal instruction that should go on in the church all the time between men and women. We see, for example, in Acts chapter 18... There's this young whippersnapper of a preacher named Apollos. And let me read to you Acts chapter 18, verse 24 and 26, about how he is actually taught by a woman and her husband. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila, her husband, a man, heard him, they, both of them, the woman and the man, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So he's preaching this sermon in the synagogue. This husband and wife ministry team are there. And they're like, yeah, it's pretty good, but you know what? Your third point was a little off. Why don't you come over to our house for lunch today? And, let's, and they instructed him, they discipled him, and certainly Priscilla, as part of the they, that was doing the teaching, the instructing, even the mild correcting of this young male preacher named Apollos. So there is that informal discipleship that happens all the time in the context of the church. And I just want to say emphatically that men do and should learn from women all the time in the local church. I am continually learning from women in this church. I hear sisters um, offer insight into Scripture weekly, and it blesses me and encourages me and spurs me on in the faith. What is in view here is the proclamation, the exposition of the Word of God in an authoritative doctrinal way in the gathered church. That's what Paul is saying that a man or that a woman should not do. The second thing he says that a woman should not do is that she should not have authority over a man. And what does this word authority mean? It's the governing, the leading of the local church. And who is to do the authoritating, the governing, the leading, the shepherding of the local church? Well, the people that do that are elders. They are men. In fact, right after 1 Timothy 2, Paul launches into a, a description of the characteristics of elders. And 
what elders do, the way elders govern and the way they lead is not by the force of their personality or by their charisma or by some secular skill that they have developed. They lead by teaching God's word. Because, listen to this, dear ones, God intends for his church to be led by his word as it is properly delivered by qualified men. And so let me read to you from 1 Timothy 3, just a couple verses after where we're reading right now. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and this is the list of the qualifications of elders, and this is what elders do. It says, therefore, an overseer, that's a word that's interchangeable with elder, pastor. By the way, the words overseer, elder, pastor are three words that are interchangeable in the New Testament. They are all speaking about the same officer role. And when you hear and read the word elder in the New Testament, don't necessarily think of chronological age, like we would think of an elderly person. Uh, it, it's, it's a spiritual office. It's a role of spiritual authority in the church. And so he says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, Therefore an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's critical in the role of an elder. He must be able to teach because his job is to lead the church by communicating the scriptures, not by his own wisdom, but by the wisdom of God. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, a couple chapters over, it says, let the elders who rule well or govern the church or exercise authority over the church who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so you see the connection there of the exercising of authority with preaching and teaching. That's 1 Timothy 3. Then Titus chapter 1, he's writing to another young pastor, and he's giving him a list, just like he gave Timothy, of the qualifications of an elder, overseer, pastor. And this is what he says at the end of this list of what an elder must be, what he must do. Verse 9 of Titus chapter 1. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So all bound up in an elder's role is the teaching of sound doctrine. And so if Paul has said that a woman should not teach and she should not exercise authority over a man, bound up in those who teach publicly in an authoritative way and those who exercise authority in the public church through teaching, that is the role of what an elder pastor does. And so clearly, at this point, we're, I, there's really no disagreement that at this point in verse 12, Paul is saying that at least at a minimum, to the Ephesian church, these Ephesian women are not to, exer they're not to teach in the gathered assembly in a mixed audience, and they're not to exercise authority over men. So they shouldn't preach, and they shouldn't fulfill the role of pastor or elder. Nobody denies that that is what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church. That's clear. Then we read on to verse 13. Paul gives two reasons for his restriction. Verse 13. He says, why shouldn't they teach? Why shouldn't they exercise authority over a man? Verse 13, 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And this is absolutely critical. To understand this argument, to understand this concept, this, this position biblically, I think you really need to see verse 13. He is rooting, Paul is rooting his logic. He's rooting the ground, the reason for his prohibition of women not teaching in the local church in the pre-fall order of creation. That Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's saying that Adam has a headship over Eve, and this is God's design. It's before the fall. It's not, hear me on this, it's not based on any ability. In fact, I know many women who can teach circles around many men. There are probably, I'm sure, women in this church who are better teachers than I am. It's not based on ability. It's not based on intelligence. That's not what Paul says. He's not basing it on any innate quality or lack of quality or any sort of material difference between men and women, but rather he's basing it on the pre-fall order of God's creation. He's also not basing it on any consequence of the fall. This is pre-fall. And he's saying that Adam was formed first, then Eve. So for that reason, I think Paul is actually taking it out of a temporary situation. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. But he's not saying, because these women in Ephesus weren't educated, or because these women in Ephesus were were just a bad lot of women that were teaching heresy, they shouldn't teach. And the logic is, well, Paul was just, his prohibition against women only applied to the women in Ephesus, but it doesn't have a sort of timeless application through the centuries. Do you follow the logic? And my point is, and I think the, the, what, not my point, who cares about my point? Paul's point is, is that it's not based on any temporal, contextual, cultural situation in Ephesus. His prohibition is based on the pre-fall order of God's creation of the headship of men, Adam over Eve. So that's verse 13. That's reason number one. His second reason and verse 14 is, is a little tricky, but let's look at it. He says, okay, first he says, because Adam was formed first, so the order of creation. And two, verse 14, he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so he's saying a woman shouldn't teach because, the second reason, because Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. There's three sort of general options of what this verse means. The first interpretation by many people is that the women in Ephesus were uneducated, like Eve. She was sort of uneducated. She wasn't the one that received the command in the garden. Adam received it, and Adam did a really poor job of explaining to Eve the situation, and so Eve was poorly educated, like the women in Ephesus. And so the, 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 the logic would follow is that the women in Ephesus shouldn't be teachers 
because Adam didn't do a good job, because the men in Ephesus haven't done a good job of discipling them, just like Adam didn't do a good job of discipling Eve, but that's a temporal situation, right? So that, that doesn't apply now, because clearly now women are much more educated and have better resources. That's one option. Uh, I don't think that, 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 that stands up, because it would completely disagree with what we just said in verse 13. It would make verse 14 contradict verse 13. The second and maybe more popular um, perspective or option on this, and even some people that would be in the camp that, uh, that, that I would be in, that women should not teach um, and exercise authority in, of, uh, uh, in the church, believe that this verse is saying that women are somehow more gullible and vulnerable spiritually. And so they look at it. Let me read it again. Adam was not deceived, so somehow he was more you know, just sharper, just more intuitive. But the woman was deceived. So think of the logic here that she was a little bit more gullible. She was a little bit more naive. And so Paul is saying, you know, women are just not quite um, as able to bear this burden because instinctively there's just a little more gullibility to women than there is to men. And that, that actually is what a lot of people think. Now, this is possible a possible interpretation, but I think it's unlikely. Um, if for, for, for one textual reason, and then just one sort of common sense reason. The first textual reason is that if women were somehow more gullible and not as qualified to teach, and they were more vulnerable spiritually, then why would Paul commend women teaching other women? If women aren't good at teaching because they're more vulnerable spiritually, let's not have them teach anybody, not just the men. Let's not have them teach the children. Because that's a really important task. So I think just even in the text, that doesn't make sense. But secondly, just sort of common sense tells me that, yes, there are vulnerable and gullible women, but there are plenty of vulnerable and gullible men, too. I think we've got knuckleheads well represented in both genders. And I think this is just kind of part of being human. I think we've got sharp, intuitive people, and I think we've got some people that don't know which way is up. And that's just kind of... That's just, I don't think that's a male-female issue. I think that's a humanity issue. I do. Now, the thing is, is we may look at some areas of life, and we may just grab onto some stereotype, and then we may superimpose it onto all of femininity or onto all of, all of masculinity, and that's incorrect. So just because a woman may not be a savvy, and let me just use a stereotype, just because a woman may not be a savvy of dealing with a, a used car salesman and you know haggling on a price doesn't mean that she's not very very savvy or intuitive in other areas of life and just because a man can do a good business deal and he's very savvy doesn't mean that he's not a completely vulnerable knucklehead in some other area of life the human psyche is way more complicated than that and so i think i think we're all kind of vulnerable and weak spiritually. I don't think that's an issue. I think what the third option is what this verse is saying, and, and, and this, is, this is, I think, the correct view, that this is, this is Paul in another way actually establishing Adam's headship and responsibility. Okay, so let me read to you a quote from Schreiner that I was very helped by. This is what Schreiner, Tom Schreiner, this professor that I mentioned um, said He says about this verse that Paul is reminding Timothy that 
Eve transgressed first. And yet, Adam was held responsible for the sin that was imputed to the whole human race. And we read that in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Adam is the one who we are all in. We're not in Eve, we're in Adam as a representative of all humanity, as the, as the head of humanity. By referring to Eve sinning first, Paul subtly reminds Timothy that Adam bore primary responsibility for sin entering the world. Note that in Genesis 3, God approached Adam first after the sin. And this confluence of factors reveals the reality of male headship. In this scenario then, verse 14 would function as a second argument for male leadership and teaching. Here's, let me summarize Shriner's logic there. He's saying, look, I don't care how this shook out. Adam, you can't see, oh, well, the woman, in fact, he does this later in the chapter, the woman that you gave me, it's her fault. God goes to Adam and he says, Adam, it's your responsibility. And so the fact that he's saying that even though the woman sort of sinned chronologically first, maybe, if we're going to say that, Adam, you're the head here. You're the head. And so back to our original argument, Paul is saying a woman should not teach or have authority in the church because God has a design and the man is the head. And even after the fall, regardless of how it shook out, the man is the head. Verse 13, there's an order. The man is the head. Verse 14, there's a fall, but the man is the head. I think that's what's going on in verses 13 and 14. And one final note on this text. If anything, if anything, this verse is not so much a commentary, if it is at all, and I don't think it is, about some weakness in women. But it's about the greater responsibility of men. Notice that men aren't deceived. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So in a sense, you could make an argument that Adam's sin was worse. He wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing. He got the command from God earlier. And he directly disobeys God. Not out of deception or ignorance, but out of willful rebellion against God. This verse is not an indictment on the weakness of women. I think it's an indictment on the passivity and the abdication of the headship of men. In verse 15, now this is a tricky verse, and we don't have time to deal with it all. But it says, yet of the woman she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, we don't have time to fully examine this text, and it's a little bit out of the purview of what we want to look at tonight, but let me just mention a couple things. I don't think that Paul is saying that only those women who have actually given birth to a child can be saved. I think he's holding that up as an example because it was obviously such a picture of womanhood to give birth that he's using that in contrast to lots of the women, particularly in Ephesus, who were rejecting this role as a woman and trying to usurp their, the, the, the role of their husbands or the men and really rejecting their role as women. And he's saying that, look, be a woman. And what he's saying here is being saved. He's not saying that you will actually physically be justified by childbearing, but he's talking in the sense of how the New Testament often talks about saving is that it's the act of sanctification. In a sort of way, it's, a, it's kind of a James testing sort of way. Not that we're saved by childbearing, but, but the, 
but this way of living as a woman, content with your role as God has made you in the order of creation, being content with that is the kind of way that you work out your salvation in a Philippians 2 sort of way, and I think that's what's going on. We could spend a lot of time on that verse, but it's a little beyond the scope. So Paul, I think, what does the Bible say about the role of women in ministry? He's clearly saying that they should not preach and teach authoritatively in the church, and they shouldn't assume the role of pastor elder because that role, the primary function of that role is to, pass, is to preach and teach. Why shouldn't they? Because Adam was formed first in Eve because of the pre-order, the pre-fall order of creation of men and women. That's the answer to that question. So what are the objections to the view that women should not preach or be pastors and elders? I'll give you three. Three kind of main ones. The first, we've kind of already hinted around, is the cultural objection. And the cultural objection goes that, well, the women in Ephesus were not educated in the first century, but now they are. And so this, the, the argument goes that this admonition by Paul, this prohibition, no longer applies because culturally things are different now. But again, I would counter that by saying, remember, Paul's not basing his logic on anything cultural. He's basing it on the pre-fall order of creation. The, the other argument is, and this cultural argument is, is that these specific women in Ephesus were, were teaching false doctrines. Um, and that's one of the concerns in Paul's letter. But the problem with that is, there's, again, there's no specific mention that it's women who are the ones teaching the false doctrine. And, and again, Paul isn't isn't grounding his logic on that. He doesn't say that in verse 13. He says, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. But probably the, the bigger one that maybe some of us have heard about, the second objection that uh, you might be more familiar with, is that, well, what about women prophets or prophetesses that are mentioned in the Old and New Testament? On a few occasions in the Old Testament, women are actually called prophets or prophetesses, and also in the New Testament. I'll use two examples. First, the, probably the most notable example would be Deborah in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, there is a woman named Deborah who is one of the judges, obviously that's a position of authority, over Israel at that time, and she is called a prophetess. So let me read, she is the only female judge, and let me read to you what the Bible says about Deborah. Judges 4, verses 4 through about 8. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, I think is how you pronounce it, and man, that's a tough name to go through life with right there, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And then the story continues. Well, a couple thoughts here. What are we to make of this situation with Deborah as being a judge over the nation of Israel? Because clearly she's called a judge and a prophetess. A couple thoughts. Number one, 
She's the, the only judge that's mentioned in Judges, and there are numerous ones. She's the only one that has no military function. In fact, in this situation, she's actually deferring and encouraging this, I think, kind of weak and pitiful man, Barak, to fulfill his duty as the military leader. In fact, in verse 8, it's a kind of implied rebuke of Barak. He has this woman to have to kind of tell him, go fight the war. And he says, will you go with me? So there's a kind of implied rebuke of the cowardice or the passivity of the male leaders of the military, specifically, specifically Barak. Unlike other judges that are mentioned in Judges, she didn't prophesy publicly or issue any proclamation of thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Individuals came to meet with her in private, more of kind of like a counseling and wisdom uh, situation. I think what's going on here and this is, the, the, I think, the prevailing thought, is that the judgeship of Deborah in Judges is an indictment on the failure and the passivity and the weakness of the men in Israel at that time. Judges is one of, if not, the darkest book in the whole Bible. And it is a, just a descent of Israel into debauchery and the failure of leadership. Judges, let me put it to you this way, judges is not a prescription of how the people of God should live. It's a description of how poorly they were living at the time. And when you read narrative, so just think about, just think about different genres of literature. Okay, 1 Timothy 2 that we just read is a, is a letter where Paul is issuing under authoritative command as an apostle. He's issuing commands saying, Timothy, do this. It's, it's propositional truth. Whereas Judges is a narrative of what's going on in the life of Israel at the time. And it's a description of the descent of Israel and really the descent of manhood in Israel, not a prescription of what it should be like. Two different types of literature. The second would then be, the most notable example would be the prophetesses, female prophets that are mentioned in the New Testament, specifically 1 Corinthians 11. Paul encourages women to prophesy. So back in 1 Timothy 2, uh, when he says that a woman should remain quiet in the church, she shouldn't teach or have authority over a man, I don't think that that means that a woman shouldn't speak at all in church. There are appropriate ways for a woman to speak in church, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So he's not saying that a woman can't speak at all, because in 1 Corinthians 11, about half of the chapter, which we won't take time to read, he actually encourages the women to pray and to prophesy in the gathered assembly, but to do so in a way that in wearing a head covering, which was the cultural behavior to express their submission to either their husband or the male authority in the church. And so I think what's going on here is the gift of prophecy at this time in the New Testament is meant to exhort and encourage people. The Bible had not been collected. The canon, the scripture that the elders were to teach from throughout the centuries of the church had not been written yet. It's in the process of being written. And this gift of prophecy is active in the church. Words of exhortation and encouragement. And men and women are to do that. But the women... When they do it, we're to do it in a way denoting their proper submissiveness to their husbands and male authority, subsuming 
subordinating their gift under the leadership of the church. So whatever was going on in, Corinth, in the church in Corinth, whatever Paul is regulating, whatever gift women were operating in was subordinate to the teaching role that was an authoritative role in the New Testament. So the fact that women prophesy in the Corinthian church does not raise them to the level of eldership and teaching that we see uh, spoken of by Paul in Timothy. So I, I don't think that, um, that, that that argument holds up water. And then the third argument would just be Galatians 3, verse 28 is a verse that people just kind of throw out. Put Galatians 3, verse 28 up on the screen. A familiar verse where Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse is not talking about our roles or any erasing of ethnic identities. It's talking about our essence before the Lord. And he's saying, in regards to your imago Dei, in regards to you as a person bearing the image of God, a Jew doesn't bear more of the image of God than a Greek. A slave doesn't bear more of the image of God than his master. A man doesn't bear more of the image of God than a female. It's not erasing the distinctions. It's, 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 it's making the point that people before the Lord are the same, but our roles are different. So that, that, water, that, that argument, I think, just does not hold up water. Okay, so finally then, what are some pastoral concerns and exhortations? Let me give you four, and then we'll, we'll open for some questions. First, uh, I think that erasing distinctions between men and women devalues womanhood, womanhood. I think in the effort to be sort of egalitarian or focused on equality, it actually undermines the beauty of God's intended role of women. Women are not made to be like men. And when a woman buys into the cultural lie that she is only successful if she's like a man, she is buying a lie. You, you, you're not meant to be like a man. That, that's not the way you, you get your value. You don't get your value by whether or not you can fulfill the role of a man. In fact, that's kind of the spirit of the Gentiles. It's this, it's this idolatry of authority that the only real value in the life of the church is positions of authority. And that's a lie. That's the ethic of our world that says the only people that really matter are the people in authority. That's a lie. And so I, I, I don't I don't buy into that, and I don't want us to buy into that in this church. And as a father of a daughter, I don't want my daughter, and I don't want the young women of this church to buy into this lie that to, to be a, a true, realized woman in this world means that you achieve all that men achieve in their roles. That's a lie. Uh, that, is sub, that is devaluing femininity biblically. Secondly, and this probably warrants its own teaching, but let me just say quickly, beware of the slippery slope that gives cultural authority over the Bible. Uh, the word hermeneutics is a word that means a way of interpreting Scripture. And a way of interpreting Scripture, just in a general sense, is to say, okay, the Bible says this, and it says some hard things, and our culture is like this. We're not gonna, we are not going to put the culture and authority over the Bible we're going to put the Bible in authority over culture. 
And one hermeneutic is to say Bible's going to be authority over culture regardless, even if it's hard, even if it seems like, how do we work this out? Another hermeneutic, or when, the word, when you see the word hermeneutic, just think of lens. Another way of looking at the scripture is to take the culture and to put it over the Bible. And the view that says, you know, this was just cultural and you know, they just kind of forget about verse 13, about Adam being formed first, and this just doesn't make sense. And, you know, th- things have changed. And so we're going to subsume, we're going to subordinate these hard verses under just kind of the, the winds of our culture and the obvious way things are going. We want to be on the right side of history, and so we're going to let women fulfill these roles. That hermeneutic, that lens, that way of looking of scripture, at Scripture, by the way, friends, is the exact logic of those that advocate for the normalizing of homosexuality. It's the same. I'm not saying that everybody that believes women should preach and be pastors also would endorse homosexuality as a valid lifestyle for a Christian, but the arguments are actually the same because there's numerous verses that, that, um, that speak about the incompatibility of giving yourself over to the homosexual lifestyle in the New Testament. And the primary argument for people that don't think that that's binding is they say, oh, well, in the first century, they were talking about a different kind of homosexuality, a sort of... Uh, uh, um, a demeaning homosexuality, not homosexuality that's based on love. And there's no textual evidence of that at all. But what it's doing is it's subordinating the scriptures underneath the cultural change. And that's a terrible way of dealing with hard verses. Thirdly, I think we should, just, we should, we should rejoice and rest in God's good design. Um, I think this goes with first one, let's, the, the first admonition. Let's not, let's not erase distinctions, but let's rejoice and rest in God's good design. This is for our good. Men and women are co-heirs of God's image, but we are different. And really, it's kind of like Romans chapter 1, where in Romans chapter 1, uh, one of the indictments of mankind is that we look at the created order and we just reject God. We suppress the truth. Well, in a way, those that would say that there's no difference between men and women and their function are suppressing the truth, and I don't mean to be crass, but they are suppressing the truth of our anatomy that is in front of us all the time. I mean, we're different. You, you, you should know that you're different from the other gender when you look at yourself. And to say that there's no difference in the way God has made men and women is to suppress the created order. And that, that's, that's bad for the human soul. And so we should rejoice and rest in God's good design. Men shouldn't be passive. They shouldn't abdicate. And women shouldn't buy into the lie that somehow their differing role is a less than role. In fact, in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 11, the the submission of a woman is compared to the submission of the son to the father. So how, Jesus is not less than in any way. He is functionally 
subordinating himself in a sense, not eternally, but in a sense in his role to the father. And women do the same to their husbands and to the male leadership of the church. And so when a woman does that, she is like Jesus. And that's not to be a second class citizen if you're to be like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, to be like Jesus. So what can and should women do in the local church? That's my final question. Can women teach other women? Absolutely. Absolutely, of course, they should. It's commanded in the scriptures. Can a woman pray or read scripture and gather worship? I think so. I think they can and should in an appropriate way. I think to read scriptures, to pray, is part of what is commended in 1 Corinthians 11. That's not preaching and teaching, but I think it's appropriate for a woman to do that. Can a woman offer um, to uh, speak with insight in the context of a community group with great insight into scriptures? Absolutely, absolutely. But I think she should just be aware that she shouldn't dominate and posture herself in a way that usurps male headship in that, in that group. And even though she may be spiritually more insightful or even more educated in the scriptures than men around her, she should be careful not to usurp or to suppress or to, in a sense, sort of spiritually emasculate the men around her, but should seek to encourage and help and posture her in a way, herself in a way, that helps to encourage and spur those brothers on. Brothers on, And even maybe her, her posture might be used to sort of convict them to stop being guys that only care about sports and hunting. Should a woman lead a community group with men in it? No, I don't think so. I think that's a... That's a it's not preaching or teaching, but I think it is a kind of spiritual role of authority. And so we don't, we don't think that that should be something that a woman does. Can a woman serve as an usher? Well, we've thought about this as elders. We've had a long discussion about it in a couple meetings. For us, we've decided that we don't think it's best. I don't think there's any verse in the Bible that says it. I wouldn't be offended if I went to a church where a woman served as an elder. But we've determined that ushers seem to have a kind of protective, masculine role to their function in the church. And we think that's just best set aside for men. Um, so, but if I went to a church and there was a woman usher, I wouldn't run out and you know, that, you know, be upset. Can a woman serve as a deacon? Yes, I do think in, in appropriate ways a woman can serve as a deacon. In so much as is that church understands that the role of a deacon is not an authoritative role. Phoebe in Romans 16.1 is called a deaconess. Now if you came from a Southern Baptist church that had what is called a deacon board, it's very likely that that church misunderstood what deacons are, and they've got a bunch of guys that they're calling deacons that are actually functioning as elders. And in that situation, I don't think a woman should be a deacon. What should happen there is the church should shake the etch-a-sketch, and they should figure out the difference between elders and deacons, and they should call those, el- those deacons elders, and they should all be men. But here in our church, we think that there are appropriate ways. We don't have any women deacons, but we do think that there are appropriate ways where a woman might serve in a diaconate role um, where she wouldn't be an authority over men. All right, questions, questions. Anybody got any questions? We got a few hands went up. We got microphones coming around. Jeff, go ahead, Jeff. Quick, we want to make our questions quick so we can get in as many as we can. Right, so uh, this is a two-part question. Okay, all right. (laughs) um, So in terms of divorce due to the fact that society in today's society mm-hmm. that's very common mm-hmm. where does the church and i don't want to talk in general the, of all the churches but this one specifically where does the, the church stands when it comes to divorced women and what would be the encouragement to those around 
Well, there's just so many nuances that I would say, like, it depends on um, the specifics of that woman's divorce. Um, if, you know, and, and not just women, I'm talking about men as well. I mean, first of all, if a person has repented of their sin, even if they have participated or, or, or been the um, instigating party in an unbiblical divorce, if they have repented, there is grace in the Lord. There's, there's grace. Um, if a person is pursuing an unbiblical divorce, um, then that is, in, that is grounds for church discipline. Right. Uh, but I'm saying more in terms of their children. The children? Yes, if the woman has children and when it comes to, you know, raising them. Raising, oh, I got you. Yeah, then of course a woman, I mean, uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Timothy his mother and grandmother are commended in the ways that they taught him the faith. Now, I don't think Timothy's mom was necessarily divorced from his father, but the clear implication is, is that his father was probably not a believer. And so women should teach their children. And in a situation where a woman is divorced and her, her husband's gone and she's raising the children, of course she's going to be used by God to be a teacher and disciple and shepherd her own children. And even if the husband is in the house and he's a wonderful Christian leader, a woman should still disciple and teach her own children. That's always the case. Yeah, good question. Okay, Stephen. Okay, so uh, Joel 2.28 and Acts 2.17 both refer to sons and daughters prophesying. Yeah. You addressed Deborah not prophesying publicly, yeah. but those words in Greek and Hebrew, respectively, are used of public prophecy as well. Right, and, and I think that's, okay, go ahead, finish your question. So my question was, because I kind of grew up in a specific flavor of yep. complementarianism, that yep. women couldn't be pastors, but they could preach. Uh, right. Does, does, those, does those verses, do yeah. those verses yeah. offer um, textual basis for women being able to preach but not hold the office? Yeah, no. Because what I was getting at when I, and I kind of breezed through it pretty quickly, but what, what I was getting at in 1 Corinthians 11 was so that Joel 2 prophecy, which is in the Old Testament, speaking of this, this new age when the Spirit will be poured out on the church, and Joel is foreseeing a time when the sons and daughters will prophesy. I think that's fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is encouraging these women to prophesy. Uh, and, but what is prophecy? That's the, that's the $64,000 question. Um, but what is prophecy? Well, whatever prophecy is, and we could have a long discussion about that, prophecy, I think, in the New Testament, certainly the way Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 14, is subordinated under the authoritative word of teaching. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14... Verse 29, I think it is, he's talking about the pro let the prophet speak and let the others weigh what is said, where you would never judge the word of God. So there's a kind of sorting out, maybe, of prophecy that, oh, maybe that was good, but that wasn't. And so women can't participate in that, but when they do participate in that, they should have a head covering which shows their submission to their husband or the male authority in the church. And whatever prophecy was in that context seems to be subsumed under the authoritative office of preaching and teaching, I think. There's lots of discussion about that, and we, we could spend a lot of time drilling down on what prophecy is. But I don't think the fact that there are prophets that are women in the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of the Joel prophecy, in any way threatens this position at all. Yeah, good question. Any other questions? Yes, Samantha. Samantha, right up here. So... 
Am I on? Yeah. I have two questions. The first is probably a little quicker. What are your thoughts on women being youth pastors? Yeah, I don't think a woman should be a pastor at all. So uh, not even like high school age? No, I think, I think when boys become men is around the age of puberty, they become young men. So in our practice would be um, to not have a woman teach uh, children out of sight of elementary age. So middle school age and above, we wouldn't have a sort of preaching. And I was, certainly would never use the word pastor. Okay. Um, even if a woman was in, like, for example, um, if you had a woman in a church who was sort of over-administrating children's ministry, I think that's fine. Um, in a sense, we do here, mm -hmm. and we have, we have Kristen Wise as our children, but we don't call her a pastor. We think it's help, more helpful to call her a children's ministry director because the title of pastor elder carries with it a certain authority that I think is unhelpful for the church to equate with a woman. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then my second question is, what are your thoughts on women that essentially are I mean, preaching sermons at women's conferences. Yeah, so yeah. I think of like Jen Wilkin, yep. um, more looked down upon, I think right now in our circle would be Beth Moore. Yeah. Um, not, I'm not talking about giving an address um, like on uh -huh. a Sunday at church. Yeah. I'm talking about the Gospel Coalition for Women or um, Beth Moore has her Living Proof Live conferences yeah. that are for women. Yeah. So I would make a distinction between Jen Wil Wilkin and Beth Moore. Um, uh, I think what Jen Wilkin does fits in Titus 2, and I think most of what Beth Moore does fits in Titus 2. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that she is she's teaching women. And I don't think it's a sin if a, if a man is there in that room that he needs to put cotton in his ears. You know, if it's a conference for women, yeah, be blessed by this wonderful teaching from this very talented sister. And if a man accesses that teaching on the Internet, I don't think, we, you know, that's a, that's a Priscilla and Aquila situation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a Titus 2 situation. Um, and Beth Moore, I'm going to distinguish about Beth Moore here. Uh, I, I have some pretty significant concerns about Beth Moore. Um, my concerns about Beth Moore are twofold. Beth Moore, to me, lately, in the past few years, has demonstrated a bit of a combative spirit, mm -hmm. a bit of a contrarian spirit about this very issue that Jen Wilkin has not. I think Jen Wilkin's a very faithful teacher. Beth Moore has been provocative in this area. Now, I realize that there are many women in this room who have benefited from Beth Moore. And I'm not saying that Beth Moore has not blessed you spiritually and that she hasn't said a lot of good things. I'm sure she has. But I am concerned that she seems to be challenging this point. And in the Southern Baptist Convention world, she's advocating not for women to be pastors, but for women to preach in the gathered audience. She's advocating for a kind of complementarianism that Stephen described a little bit earlier, and I think that's unbiblical. And it's not so much that somebody's advocating for that, but she's doing it in kind of a, of a, of a combative way in, on social media. So that concerns me a little bit. I'm, I want to be gracious because I think that she's probably reacting to some misogynistic jerks. I get that. So I, I want to factor that again. And then secondly, quite frankly, um, I, I know that Beth Moore has benefited many, many people, but Beth Moore sometimes in her interpretation of Scripture, I think, can be a little mystical and very experiential. And some of the things that she says, I think, are just unhelpful um, um, teachings that, that I, I think there's just better stuff out there. Listen, ladies, I, I, I have a limit on my email inbox of uh, megabytes. <laughs> If you want to talk, I'll talk to you more about this and give you some examples. I'm not saying that Beth Moore hasn't benefited you. I think she's a dear sister who's been used faith, fruitfully. I think she loves Jesus. I think she's phenomenally talented. But, you know, like all of us, she's, she's probably got some blind spots like I do, you know. And so um, I, I, would, I, would, I would separate Beth Moore from, 
Jin Wilkin a bit, but that would be, did I answer your questions, Connor? Yeah, for the most part. I might just be splitting hairs yeah. here, but how do you distinguish the difference between pastoring or, or preaching versus yeah. teaching? Yeah. Um, so like, for example, Jen Wilkin, yeah. she really does, in yeah. my opinion, preach. Like yeah. she breaks down the text I, and how... Yeah, yeah, I think, no, I think that's, that's fine to do. I'm not going to put a fine tooth comb between preaching and teaching. If if what she's doing is for the benefit of, in a Titus II sort of way, women, I'm like, sister, let it rip. Mm-hmm. However that form, t- comes out of your personality. And a lot of that is based on personality. Somebody, but it's more exhortive, we're going to call that preaching. Somebody that's a little quieter and more academic, we're going to call it. But the spiritual good from God's word is being imparted to God's people. Um, when I think of the word preaching, um, I think what's happening there is the exposition of God's word in the gathered assembly or an evangelistic address so I'm not so concerned about, about, about differentiating between the manner or the style or whatever. I'm just more concerned with the, the execution of the explaining of the scriptures and the audience. And I think Jen Wilkin does a great job in that. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think Beth Moore has done a great job in that at times as well. But um, I just have a couple issues. Okay, any other questions? Yeah, over here in the back... Can't see who that is. Is that Gabe? Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm on here. All right. Brad, I appreciate everything you said this evening. Um, I'm curious to hear uh, pastoral advice that you might have for a woman um, who is in an authoritative position, maybe uh, I think immediately of of the military, mm-hmm. um, a woman who might be in charge of, of especially with combat arms being open to women now. Um, there are mm-hmm. um, there uh, there are several you know infantry female infantry lieutenants and mm-hmm. um, probably some captains by now. Um, you know who are who are in a, a strict. I know this isn't the context of mm-hmm. the church, but they're in an authoritative role mm-hmm. over men, and and sometimes that 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 role has to take kind of a, a, mm-hmm. a domineering. Um, mm-hmm. characteristic to accomplish the mission. Yep. Any pastoral advice for a woman in that position uh, yeah. who, who has found herself there, who, who is a, a God-fearing woman? Is, is there a, a way to make that happen? Yeah. I'm sorry to do this to you. No, I, I, this is a good question. Gabe, that's a great question. I think that's really, really difficult. I think the context clearly of 1 Timothy is the church. It's not addressing the culture. That doesn't mean that the principles of the kingdom of God, the outposts of the kingdom of God here on earth, shouldn't, shouldn't, we shouldn't seek to kind of have it influence the culture around us. Um, I'm going to say that I think the fact, I think that, I want to say two things that might sound contradictory. The fact that our nation is enlisting women in combat roles like infantry and other things, I think is I see that overarchingly as a kind of uh, indictment on our nation. Um, I don't think that's good for mankind. Having said that, I know that there are some sisters that are used mightily in those frontline situations. I know there are rangers in this church that have told me that they've had female um, MPs and special forces women to help them in very difficult, you know, intense situations where they are, you know, helping to, uh, you know, be there for an operation where there's women involved, maybe in Afghanistan or Iraq, and they're served valiantly. So I'm not, it's not a commenta- commentary on the bravery of women. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. 
I just think in general it's an indictment on our nation. I mean, that's not an indictment on, of all women in the military. I'm just talking about these specific roles. Um, if you're in that situation as a woman, um, I think you serve as best you can. And, and you just, you, if you're a Christian woman, you do as best you can. If you're a Christian man and you're serving in that situation, you do as best you can. I think we live in a fallen world. And um, I think it will not all be well until Jesus comes again. Um, I, you know, I would have loved to have lived in Margaret Thatcher-led England. Let me put it to you that way. I think Margaret Thatcher was a wonderful prime minister, as best as I can tell. I mean, I was young at the time, but looking back, I mean, so, you know, I would rather that Margaret Thatcher be the leader of my country than some godless person who's got all sorts of principles that would go against the kingdom of God, but that's a man. So we live in a fallen world. We do the best we can. It's a great question. Okay, one more question, and then we're going to, I want to be cognizant of time, and it's a school night. Paul. Well, just a quick comment, not a question. I think it's worth adding that, like, the practical application of this, particularly in the home, like, requires the Lord's grace. It can be yeah. very, very difficult yeah. for a woman who is mature in her faith, uh, who studies Scripture, who's serious about walking with the Lord, to live in a submissive manner uh, to a husband who's maybe very immature in his faith yeah. and passive. And yep. so just an exhortation to women to like just bear up under that yep. and just sort of yep. like, 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 like pray for God's grace in that situation. Yeah. Certainly we don't have that issue in the church uh, here uh, just because I you know, believe God's sort of blessed us with godly men, but um, certainly in, in, in the home that can be very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we certainly, I mean, we're just, the church is full of men that, that to varying degrees or another are abdicating their responsibility and making it very difficult on their women. So I agree, I agree. Um, yeah, and let me just end with the, that exhortation. That's a good, a good way to end, Paul, is that, um, you know, I know this is a hard teaching, and I know that our culture is increasingly hostile to this teaching, and I just want to, I, I, it's like we just need to just detox ourselves in the Scriptures and to any sister in here that might maybe misinterpret what I have said or the Bible says as a way of sort of diminishing them, that's not the case at all. Um, I think that this particular view actually exalts womanhood. Women, femininity should be protected and exalted and celebrated. And if you're a young woman in this room, you don't get your value by whether or not you measure up to a man's role, and you don't get your value by your figure or by your face. And the same culture that wants to tell you that your value comes from being like a man or making as much as a man or being a CEO like a man is the same culture that wants to parade women in bathing suits in every advertisement. They don't really care about you. They objectify you. All they care about, this world is dominated by a wicked masculine spirit. And they will use your political clout to increase their power, but the moment they don't need you anymore, they'll put you in a bathing suit to sell their beer or their truck. And it's wicked. And it's, and it's let's not drink from that cistern. Um, let's drink from this this cistern. And let's confess, finally, let me just say this, let's confess that 
every man in this room, to varying degrees or another, is falling short of all that he should be as a leader in Christ. And so the biggest note shouldn't be women get in line. It should be men repent and lead. That's the, that's the loudest note. Well, let me pray. Actually, before I pray, let me mention um, there's this statement on um, the Danvers statement. is a wonderful little summary of, uh, of, of just kind of this biblical truth. You can get, grab it on that, that uh, table or the back. It's excellent. Um, there's a copy, I think, for everybody. I think it might be helpful to you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these friends. I pray that you'd encourage us as we go. Um, if there's anything I've said that's been unhelpful tonight or not right on the money, I pray that it would fall to the ground. Anything that's been good and true and, and from you, uh, I pray that it would stick fast to our hearts and help us as a church be more like Jesus. Um, thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you for the image of God in men and women. May we all be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.